If you guys want to pull out your sermon insert, it should be inside your worship booklet. It says Psalms, the anatomy of the soul. This has been the theme that we have used this summer. We uh, each summer take a break from whatever current sermon series we're working through to spend time in God's, God's hymn book, his song book. And the phrase, the anatomy of the soul, was borrowed by the 16th century reformer John Calvin, who called the book of Psalms an anatomy of all parts of the soul. And we've seen it this summer alone. We've been on mountaintops celebrating and giving praise to God. We've been in the valleys as David and the psalmists are crying out from the depths of their heart for God's help. We've seen laments, thanksgivings, celebrations, and tears. The psalms are, in fact, the anatomy of the soul. This morning, as a part of the soul, we are talking about thanksgiving. You're talking about praise. If you've been with us this summer, you know that I had the joy, um, due to Roger's vacation and study leave, of getting back-to-back, to-back-to-back-to-back laments. We are not lamenting this morning. And uh, it's a joy to have a psalm of thanksgiving that I hope and pray and have been praying for you by name that this would encourage you this morning. So Psalm 65 is our topic of study. I know we've been doing a lot of ups and downs, but if we could, as is custom here at New City, stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to read the entirety of Psalm 65. To the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. And to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near. To dwell in your courts, we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs." You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. Your water, you you water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, the date was July 18th. 2008, that day was the release of Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. If you're unfamiliar with that, that's a movie um, of Christopher Nolan, uh, his Batman trilogy. 
It released on July 18th. But July 18th was a unique day for me in a lot of ways. I was a high school junior, and I played a lot of sports. I attended a small Christian school, and as small Christian schools do, I don't know why, but we took sports seriously, and it was a little too serious, probably. But uh, that year, I played basketball and soccer, and uh, July 18th started with an early, early basketball practice. I was in a summer league to try to stay, uh, you know, in shape throughout the summer, and that's Basketball practice had a ton of conditioning. We were doing stairs, suicide sprints. Um, it was a lot of terribleness. And as all high school students, unwise high school students, think that we are un, like invincible, we can't die, we're too great for that, I decided with a couple guys to go hit the gym afterwards for some intense weight training. And I particularly remember that that day had heavy power cleans, back squats, Romanian deadlifts, and we thought it would be a good idea to have a lot of high volume leg press. Then, school soccer was in season, so that afternoon I went to soccer practice. I played keeper. We had a lot of conditioning that day too. We did some scrimmaging, but a lot of running. They make the keepers run. I don't know why, I didn't enjoy it, but I ran a lot that day, a two hour, Soccer practice. So 90-minute basketball practice, 90-minute weight session, two hours of soccer practice that afternoon in July in Indiana. That's all backstory because I had a friend that night having a bachelor party. He was a friend of mine. He was just a couple years older than me. And as was the case with Christian kids getting married young, that is 21 or younger, bachelor parties, you know, would just be super wild. It would intend going to a movie and playing board games. But this day we went to a movie, we played sports, and then went to a movie afterwards. The movie was The Dark Knight. We went to the East 96th Street movie theater. Many of you probably have been there and watched a movie there. That's where I was, enjoying the trailers before the movies, like the previews. I have a pet peeve in the movies that I don't like the crunch of bags or the, the, the crunch of candies. So lemon heads, that was my choice, and they were two for three when I bought them and smuggled them in, so we went lemon heads and Skittles. And the crunch bugs me, so I open them both up and, and, and dump them in my lap. You guys do that? Like put, put it in your shirt, which is kind of like a plate, so it's quiet. So some of you guys do. I can see that. I'm not the only one. Don't lie. Lying is a sin. So I, I put it in there because it's quiet. You just grab and enjoy. But that's when I knew something was off. Every time I went to dip into my lemon heads, I got a, a cramp. Anybody, sports people, you guys know what cramps are. Some people call them Charlie horses. They started in my hand and forearm, so it would just crumple up when I would grab a lemon head, and I'd have to like pry my hand open. I felt like at that time I didn't have any water left in my entire body. So I'd be okay until I went for the next lemon head, and it happened again. It was a nightmare. And remember, this is opening night of the dark night. They made $160 million that weekend alone in America alone. So I'm sitting shoulder to shoulder with most of my basketball and soccer teams in a row, and the theater's packed. I'm in the dead center of the row. And I begin thinking, this is not good. This is not going to be helpful, but I'm going to need some hydration at some point during this nearly three-hour movie. So the movie starts. We're in like the opening scene. We're not even past the opening scene when it happens. This is not an overstatement. Every muscle in my lower half begins to cramp at the same time. It started with the calf, and I'm like, ah, I can handle that. So you're kind of pulling your toe up to stretch the calf, 
That ignites the hamstring cramp, which feels like your hamstring's about to pop off. It's my, that's my least favorite, it's the hamstring. It, it was super tight, so what do you do with a hamstring cramp? You straighten your leg and try to stretch the hamstring, which then ignites the quad cramp. It was not good. So just, just like without bodily control, I spring to my feet. But I have a pouch full of lemon heads <laughs> and Skittles, which are ejected all over the heads of the people in front of me and the people in front of them. And we are in the back row of a concrete theater. So you hear 200 lemon heads rolling down right when the movie gets quiet. After the opening action sequence, silence and still. Taylor shoots up, lemon heads everywhere. They roll down. My friends still make fun of me to this day. Every time we talk about Dark Knight, remember Taylor? Uh, so I am still standing there, listening to my lemon heads just roll down like rain to the front of the theater. Eventually, I get the strength to, to waddle out in front of like half of my team to the, the handrail where I hold on for dear life and escape to the hallway, kind of like that hallway out. So I'm still there and I can see the movie, but from the hallway where I'm hidden from people wondering what's going on. And I spend the next two hours and 32 minutes watching The Dark Knight from that hallway, stretching and chugging water. I went to the concession stand a handful of times, refill me with water. Uh, it was funny looking back. And again, my friends still pick on me. And I can't think of The Dark Knight without a little PTSD. But in that moment, you would say, Taylor had to get water. I had to. I had to get to hydration, or to put it another way, it was only logical based upon what I was feeling and what I was seeing to get to a source of water. Whatever it cost, I was singular in my mission. Because of what I was feeling, it only made sense. I didn't, you know, go, going and gathering up my lemon heads did not make sense. Staying there for two and a half hours, cramping in my seat did not make sense. I had to get to water. You could say because of what my body was doing, because of what I saw, it only followed that I needed to get to water. And if the concession stand had sold bananas, I would have probably eaten them all. I needed a lot of help that night because of my own foolishness. But we could say that I was due water. Psalm 65 is a wonderful song. Remember, these psalms are prayer songs, or they're song prayers. And this psalm is not extra thirsty and dehydrated, needing to get to water like I was, but what Psalm 65 does give us is the only logical thing that those who know God and see God for who he is, the only logical response. What is the reasonable response to those who see God and know God for who he is? Answer, thanksgiving or to use the word from the psalm, praise. When we see the Lord and all that he has done for us in creation and in redemption, there is no other response that makes sense other than thanksgiving. To put a, a different spin on it from a different angle, we could say the Lord is due praise and thanksgiving because of his vast kindness in creation and in redemption. And that's what we're going to explore. The reality that God is actually due 
our thanksgiving and praise. It is our responsibility and privilege and joy and all of the asides. But he is due praise because of what he has done in creation and in redemption. We're going to explore that together throughout Psalm 65 by looking at God's grace, God's power, and then God's goodness. And just from the outset, I want to tell you, we're going to spend the vast majority of our time on the first one, looking at God's grace in choosing and forgiving his people. And I'm getting that from the first four verses. So we're going to be camped out there for, for the m- most of our time together. So let's begin there, looking at God's grace in choosing and forgiving his people, verses one through four. We're not very far into this, and we already have a problem. If you have your sermon insert, it's not there because I didn't include it in there. But the opening phrase, praise is due to you. If you have a paper Bible, you probably have a little number one there that shoots you down to a footnote and tells you, or praise waits for you in silence. Okay, so it's a translation question. And as an aside, you'll see in just a moment, this is a, this is a great example of the utter reliability of translations. None of, of the translation questions your English Bible has has to do with anything doctrinal or core. As you're going to see in a moment, we're going to debate vowels. Is the word do or is the word silence? Um, and both are absolutely true using the rest of Scripture. Your, your English Bibles can be stood upon with confidence because of our manuscripts. But there is a, there is a dispute here because the ESV, English Standard Version, which I read to you, follows a certain manuscript tradition. It's the manuscript tradition of the, sorry, I know we're nerding out for just a second, Hold, hang with me. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the Vulgate is the Latin translation of the whole Bible. They go with this. Praise is due to you because they think the vowels are this and that of that word. The Problem is that alters a little bit of what is actually there. In the original Hebrew Old Testament, the other translation is probably correct, which would be following the New American Standard, which is a really good literal translation. It reads, verse one, there will be silence before you and praise in Zion. Okay? So that's what we're debating is, is that, and uh, I'm just pointing this out to you, want to, to trust your English Bibles, but to know like there's some nerdy things going on here. If the ESV is right, it's praise is due to you, Lord. Praise is due to you in Zion. It's just getting at something utterly true to us and clear elsewhere, even in the Psalms. Psalm 147 says exactly that. Praise is due. It's the Lord's due. It's what we are called to do. It is, it, it, it's an example of the first question and answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's our responsibility. It's the only logical thing to do, like me getting water. It's what we're made for. But I, I go with the other one, actually. I think the footnote in my English Bible's better. Praise waits for you in silence, oh God. Because that doesn't rule out anything I just said. It actually adds to it. And if that's true... It's also, Psalm 62 says exactly that. Praise waits for you, Lord, in silence. I think it adds to an aspect of our life as worshipers. I've uh, pressed you guys pretty hard, even this summer, but I do it, you try to do it once a year, step on everybody's toes, where I talk about the expressiveness in worship. 
lifted hands, shouting, clapping, dancing. These are all things given to us in the Psalms that we're to embody. We're supposed to be loud and shout and enjoy and smile for God. Amen? The Psalms tell us that. But what I like about this is it gives us another side of the coin. One aspect of our praising God can be, is often, silence. Quiet wonder. Together when we come, that's why we have moments of silence in our liturgies. But even as you go as scattered family units and individuals through the week, part of your worship should be loud, shouts, raised hands, claps, kneels, prostrate, jump, dance, yes, and still, shh, quiet amazement. Praise waits for you, Lord, in silence. And it actually makes me think of revivals throughout church history. Revivals just speaks of times in which God uniquely pours out his spirit and and large numbers of people come to faith in Jesus and those who are believing in Jesus in those times are like reignited with passion. You can read about them. As a student of church history, I particularly like a couple of them. One, the 16th century Reformation, which was a revival. The Great Awakening of the 18th century, you can read about John Wesley, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards was writing about those guys and what he saw in the churches. A more recent one, the Welsh revivals of 1904 and 1905. That's just three. There's been lots of revivals. In each of those revivals throughout church history, there have been unique marks that have told historians, this is unique. This is big. Yes, that includes conversion. Lots of spiritually dead people coming to faith in Christ. Yes, it included a power in preaching. Specifically, these normal ministers saying the same words that they'd been saying for months and years, preaching the same types of sermon, but the Holy Spirit just does something and and people come to faith in Christ. Yes, it included a deepening of discipleship. A lot more singing, a lot more praying, a lot more Bible reading, a lot more Bible studies. Yes, yes, yes. And it included an ignited passion for mission and evangelism. Those are all aspects of revival when you see uh, genuine revival in church history. But all of those accounts of revivals included something else I haven't mentioned. Lloyd-Jones talks about this with the Welsh revivals. Edwards talks about this with the Great Awakening. And most of the reformers mention this in their own churches. That when revival's happening, one of the marks of revival is silence. Oftentimes, the spirit moved so powerfully and the word was proclaimed so clearly and Jesus was was held up high that people took it and said, I gotta sit for a second. I need to just sit with this and wonder at the beauty of Jesus. He saved me. He delivered me. He, He did what for me? And the Psalms have exactly that as well celebration, joy, exuberant praise, and your praise can include silence and wonder and contemplation, thought. Maybe you've experienced that in your own walk with Jesus, both of those. Anybody here for the Gospel Coalition this week? Who's going to the Gospel Coalition? Excellent. I'll see you guys there. The Gospel Coalition is a large evangelical reformed all the things, uh, conference here in our town, just a few miles from where we're standing. 
I think something like eight to 10,000 people flooding our city to sing the praises of Jesus with an Australian worship band, City Light, of which we're singing two of their songs this morning. I'm excited about it. It's gonna be a lot of clapping. It's gonna be a lot of hand raising, joy. Yes, great teaching. Book discounts, which I'm most excited about. That's a part of our life. The conference life, the joy, the up, the celebration. Thank you, Lord, for your provision. But maybe you've experienced the other two. A unique awareness of your sin and, I, and you're just like, I, I, need to, I need to give quiet praise to the Lord. Both are a part of the Christian life. And Psalm 65 actually gives us both. But we're even given more. So that was the first phrase. Okay, we're gonna move a little quicker here in just a second. Not only do we see the call that we are to praise God, that our worship is due to the Lord, but we're given reasons. This is often the case with the Psalms. Praise the Lord for, and then we're given reasons why. Psalm 65 does the same thing. Look with, verse, look with me at verse three. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one, verse four, Blessed is the one you choose and bring near. We could spend the rest of the time, the rest of this week exploring that. Praise is due to the Lord. Why? Because he atones for your sins. He's chosen you and he's brought you near. Oh my. The word atones there in verse three just means to cover. It means to to take away. And David knew this. David knew that the Lord takes away sin. You can read about it in Psalm 32, Psalm 51, and read about it in the narratives. David was certainly not perfect. That's good news for you and me. He knew the forgiveness of the Lord, but David knew the forgiveness of the Lord only in shadow form. Why? Because when he's saying, yes, the Lord atones for sins, he's thinking of bulls and goats. He's thinking of a ceremonial law that temporarily covered his sins. And the ones he did in 2024 would need to be taken care of in 2024. What David is seeing and speaking of here will be far surpassed by the blood of Jesus of Nazareth, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. David's writing stuff here in seed form that grows and blossoms the more we read the story and God unfolds things more clearly to us. Yes, David knew the atonement that is in the Lord, but we see it much more clearly now, the total and the complete and the full atonement that is in the God-man, Jesus Christ. And this is exactly how the New Testament scriptures speak of our Lord. I'm just picking one example, the apostle John. He speaks of Jesus using a a long word, propitiation. Okay, so bear with me here, propitiation. You should try it when you get home, propitiation. It means a sin of atonement, a a, a sacrifice of atonement, a sin covering, a sin taking, a propitiation. Here's what John, the dear friend of the Lord Jesus says. This is love. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, that we do, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let that sink in for a moment. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit orchestrated 
the entirety of our salvation. Jesus is your, if you are in Jesus by faith, if you're in Christ by faith, Jesus is your sin coverer. Jesus is your sin taker. To use the words of Psalm 103, your sins have been cast as far as the east is from the west and the Lord has chosen not to remember them anymore. Jesus has atoned for you your mistakes, your sins, your shortcomings, whatever they are. Christian, your lust, your anger, your impatience, your pride, your rebellion at all things that smell of authority, your laziness, your apathy, your idolatry, your dishonesty, your overindulgence, your covetousness, covered. Not just what you have done, all of them taken away by the Lord Jesus. And it wasn't because the Lord just looked the other way. It's not just because he, he swept your sins under the rug. I, w- I won't pay a look at that. Mm-mm. No, it's because Jesus was your propitiation. He got what you deserved, so you get what he earned. That's amazing news. We can say with David, when iniquities, whether they're your own or others' iniquities prevailing against you, oh, you, God, atone for our transgressions. And he doesn't stop there. It just keeps going. Blessed is the one you, it's the Lord, choose and bring near. This choosing and bringing near language is, is election language. It's choosing language. And it's something that David is very aware of. If we try to put ourselves in David's shoes, he's a great illustration of this truth. There's an evil King Saul. He drops the ball. The Lord chooses to depart from Saul and he raises up a king. God does a king after his own heart. That is, spoiler alert, David. But when the Lord decides to leave Saul and pursue David, David is not thinking about the Lord. David didn't wake up that day thinking, today's the day, I become king. He's not even thinking. It's not on his radar at all, but God has decided. God has determined, I choose David. David's not fit for it. He didn't earn it, and he's not even thinking about it, not pursuing the Lord in in this way, in the the kingship way. And so uh, God raises up the prophet Samuel, says, hey, go, go to Bethlehem. That's an important city in the biblical story. And says, go to the house of Jesse. Jesse is David's dad. There's like 12 boys. There's 11 of them there. And uh, Samuel shows up. He's like, hey, Jesse, I need one of your kids. God's going to raise them up to be a king. Let me see the boys. The oldest shows up. That's got to be him. I mean, he's like 6'2". That's the one. God says, nope. Is it number four here? He's strong. He, he, He is literally the perfect king, God. Fit, strong, can lead us. He's sharp. No, that's not it. So Samuel goes through all 11 kids, and he's like, sorry, Jesse, I might be wrong here. I don't, do you have any other boys? She's like, yeah, there's, there's one more. The, young, the runt, he, he's out back somewhere. I don't know what he's doing. He's probably playing the harp with the sheep. That's what he did. He's a small fella. He was a musician. And God says, that's the one. He's my king. David didn't deserve it. David didn't earn it. David didn't even look the part. He wasn't even thinking about kingship, but God had been pursuing him all along. And like David, 
Your story, Christian, is just like that. You didn't choose it. You weren't just the, the, the epitome of perfect Christian that God needed on his team. You weren't the one seeking it out. Your fitness didn't, didn't merit it. You didn't earn it. The scriptures tell us in Ephesians 1 that you, if you're in Christ, were chosen before the foundation of the world. Friends, I don't pretend to know what all that looked like and how that works. What I do know is it's true because we're told it's true. In Christ, you have been chosen before the foundation of the world and God in his sovereign love said, mine. And he set his affections on you and he has pursued you your whole life. But it's not a choosing that stays distant. We think of election. We have, we have some elections in our culture, usually just include debating and fighting and, and madness. You can even write in your elections, right? Your, your choices for election at a distance and stay away, not even get near the crowds. That's not what's going on. The Lord chooses, but he chooses to bring near. God didn't say, I want you, and I'll stay back over here. I'm way up in the cosmos. I'm way far away, but you're chosen, so you're good, and I'm staying over here. The choice that God made was to have you as a son or daughter and for you to be near. And the nearness language, blessed is the one that God chooses and brings near. Oh, this is fun. It's priestly language. It'll be important in just a second. When we think about when David's writing this, who, is, who are the ones that are near the Lord? Israel would be one pick, right? They're the one nation out of all the nations the Lord chooses to be his. But not all of them are equally near the Lord. Even in the nation of Israel, 12 tribes, only one tribe is the priestly one, the tribe of Levi, that gets to do the works of the Lord. But even then, so we're just thinking of the, the, are those Russian dolls, the ones that are inside each other, so we're just unpacking those right now. In the, the tribe of Levi, only a select group of priests were able to be in the courts, verse four, the near courts of God. And one more doll, even in those priests, only one, the high priest, was allowed to be in the presence of God. The holy of holies. And that was only one time a year. David, again, is speaking well beyond what he understands. Because he's talking about all nations being near. Everybody getting in on this. But that, again, is exactly what we see as we keep turning the pages and arrive at the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me use Peter this time, the apostle Peter, another one of Jesus' disciples. He's writing to the church in 1 Peter, a group of elect exiles, chosen churchmen and women. And he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In Jesus, 
the nearness is no longer for one high priest amongst the priests in a tribe of Levi in the one nation that God has chosen. But in Jesus, all peoples are invited because Jesus has died as a ransom for a, for a group of people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. The dividing walls are down. It's no longer just one tribe that has access to God, but all who are in Christ by faith. It's no longer just one high priest who gets to go into the Holy of Holies, but now all who have turned from their sin and embraced Jesus get the ear and the throne of God. That's just the first four verses. I told you we'd spend the vast majority of our time there looking at God's grace, because I think that this psalm is an excellent example of lots of, of Jesus in the first four verses. We're given two other reasons, though, as to why thanksgiving is due to the Lord. These are very brief. The second one is God's power. God's power in creating and overseeing the cosmos. It begins in verse 5, that, that by your awesome deeds, Lord, you answer us. So that's answered prayer, the prayer mentioned in verse 2. The Lord hears prayer God answers by awesome deeds so that all the ends of the earth would know him. Verse six, he's the one who by his strength established the mountains, who stilled the roaring of the seas. Again, verse eight, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of his signs. That has been and is being fulfilled because I'm looking at the ends of the earth. I am the ends of the earth. David is writing from a small sliver of land in the Middle East a thousand years before Jesus. We are the ends of the earth. Jesus and his gospel has been heralded through faithful servants throughout church history to get to us. The awesome deeds of the Lord have been answered and continues to be answered as those pick, Christians pick up their things and go to unreached people groups. But I love this and I can't improve on the language. Verses five through eight could be summed up in a song we sing here called All Praise to Him, written by Sovereign Grace Music. Their first stanza says this. All praise to Him, the God of light, who formed the mountains, Psalm 65, by his might. All praise to him who names the stars that sing his fame in skies afar. All praise to him who reigns in love and guides the galaxies above. Yet bends to hear our every prayer with sovereign power and tender care. That's what Psalm 65 is saying. The one who forms the mountains and stills the seas knows all things. He's guiding the galaxies above. He spoke the universe into existence and upholds it by the word of his power, listens to you. He listens to me. It's crazy. And it should empower us to pray, to draw near. When we study the bigness of God, I hope it doesn't actually overwhelm us. It could. 
We're not meant to be overwhelmed and, and want to stay away from the Lord. We're not meant to fear because he's so big. He's so mighty. I can't bother him with my, you fill in the blank. This is meant to, to draw us near to the Lord. One of my heroes in the faith is Charles Spurgeon. He said it this way. He who counts the stars and calls them by their names is in no danger of forgetting his own children. I don't know what you went through this week, and I don't know about the, the week that you're about to have, but I do know whether they were tears or partying, whether it was a lament or celebration, whether it's thanksgiving or loss, the Lord sees you. He knows you. He doesn't forget you. He's not blind. If you're in Christ by faith, remember you've been chosen and brought near. The God of the universe loves you and actually likes you. We conclude the psalm by going to the table. The third thing we see here in verses 9 through 13 is God's goodness in nourishing us. God's goodness in providing for his world. In the psalm, it's all physical language. We're, we're almost placed in Israel to see the, the valleys and the mountains and the abundance of rain. And remember, in a desert, that's important. But it's portrayed as overflowing of water, grain everywhere. Even the valleys have vegetation. The mountaintops are bursting at the seams with God's provision. And the church of Christ is no different. He continues to lavishly pour out nourishment on you and on me. They're just ordinary means. We call them means of grace. Ways that we posture ourselves to receive God's grace and goodness. One of those, and the one that I think is connected to this psalm, is a physical nourishment of the table. A spiritual nourishment in which we physically take things to ourselves. Bread and wine. We come to this table each week as the New City community to trust afresh in Jesus. Because what you need is probably not water like me on July 18th, 2008. But what you need is life. And Jesus came so that we would have it abundantly. We're going to go to the table in a few moments, take a piece of bread and, and wine, which preach to us the atonement, verse 3, that we have in Jesus. That he is sin cover and sin taker. And the bread and the wine are going to preach to us that we are a y'all people now, a kingdom of priests. We're no longer to think of ourselves primarily as individuals, but as a family, redeemed, forgiven, and free in Jesus. And it's a bread and wine that preaches to us of a future that Jesus in his resurrection has made sure. Our faith, brothers and sisters, are no, it will, will no, lo no longer be just faith. It'll be turned to sight when we partake and touch and see our Savior in glory. We come to the table each week, and in just a few moments, we say that the communion table is for Christians. It's for those who have entrusted themselves to Jesus and are a part of a gospel-preaching church. If that is you, you are welcome to come. If that's not you, I would encourage you to wait. If you're not a Christian yet and you're...